You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. It Gets Better Project was launched on this program in 2010. Sometimes it's funny. People will write me and say, oh my God, have you ever heard of this It Gets Better Project thing? Yeah, I've heard of it. Terry and I, my husband and I, we launched that. We created that. And it was first rolled out here on the Savage Lovecast. And the idea behind it was getting LGBT adults to share their wisdom, how they made it better for themselves, what they did, you know, the, what they said to their parents, uh, what they said to their friends, what they did if they were being bullied to survive and get through that with LGBT youth. You know, when you think about it, a kid who's bullied because of his race or her faith or her class, go home to parents of the same faith, same race, same class that they can turn to for advice. The queer kid doesn't go home to that. All too often that queer kid goes home to parents who are also bullying them which is often the case with conservative, religious, fundamentalist, evangelical, shitbag parents. The It Gets Better project, out of the gate, was attacked by religious conservatives. And leading the attack, Tony Perkins, head of the Family Research Council, perhaps the most powerful evangelical conservative Christian in the country. In August of 2011, Perkins sent a fundraising letter to the Family Research Council dupes out there that reads in part, the videos are titled, It Gets Better. They are aimed at persuading kids that although they'll face struggles and perhaps bullying for coming out as homosexual or transgendered or some other perversion, life will get better. It is disgusting. It is part of a concerted effort to persuade kids that homosexuality is okay and actually to recruit them into that lifestyle. Family Research Council, which again, Tony Perkins heads, declared an anti-gay hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. They have attacked queer people, gays, lesbians, bisexual, transgender people repeatedly as perverts, as predatory, as targeting youth, targeting teenagers. So it gets better project. Terrible, awful, recruiting kids, Family Research Council, gay people, terrible, awful, preying on children. Bear all that in mind. While you read, and you should go read the report at the Washington Post from November 17th, headlined How a Conservative Group Dealt with a Fondling Charge Against a Rising GOP Star by Kimberly Kindy and Elise Vibeck. Turns out at a conference at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel near Washington, D.C., where money was being raised for a rising star in evangelical politics, that rising star invited an 18-year-old boy, the son of a couple of the major donors to this organization, up to his hotel room to crash after partying in Washington, D.C., and at 4 a.m., that 18-year-old boy fled that rising evangelical Christian right-wing politics star's bedroom because the candidate allegedly, then-candidate, allegedly opened his fly in the middle of the night and grabbed his dick. The boy went to his parents, told them what happened, and the parents went to the head of the organization that was having the fundraiser for this rising star in evangelical politics. The head of that organization, Tony fucking Perkins. The organization, not Family Research Council, a related organization, Council for National Policy. And Perkins, in an email, replied to this boy's parents saying, trust me, this will not be ignored nor swept aside. It will be dealt with swiftly, but with prudence. And prudence seemed to dictate doing exactly nothing. Prudence seemed to dictate telling the candidate, hey, you need to knock that shit off. 
Apparently, Perkins was aware that this wasn't the only incident in this rising star in evangelical politics past. Quote from the emails, and they got all the emails. God bless the Washington Post and these two reporters. They got all the emails related to this incident. Tony Perkins, going forward so soon by running for office without some distance from your past behavior and a track record of recovery carries great risk for you and for those who are supporting you. Perkins wrote to the candidate in December of 2015. This guy, Wesley Goodman, ran for office, got elected to the Ohio State Legislature using the money that Perkins helped him raise. Perkins didn't endorse him. The group withdrew its endorsement. But in a tight race, again, using the money Perkins helped raise, he won a three-way primary. He won that three-way primary, got the Republican nomination, and sailed into this seat. Probably wouldn't have won if Perkins had come forward with these allegations, with this incident, and whatever previous misbehavior Perkins had been aware of. But Perkins did not do that. Perkins seems to have covered this up. That's how Slate interpreted the events related in the Washington Post. And you should go to the Washington Post again and read that article. And there really is no other interpretation. Backing way the fuck up to the It Gets Better project, Perkins claims that the gay lifestyle, quote unquote, is dangerous and unhealthy and points to the suicide rate. Gay kids, queer kids are four times likelier to attempt suicide. But a queer kid whose parents reject them, queer kids whose parents are hostile, eight times greater risk of suicide. Parental hostility, family hostility doubles a queer kid's already quadrupled risk of suicide. And what does Tony Perkins tell parents to do exactly what the research and data shows and Tony Perkins damn well knows or should damn well knows doubles that queer kids already quadrupled risk for suicide. And Perkins tells parents to do that, tells parents to do what will drive their kids closer to suicide. And then Perkins turns around and points to the LGBT youth suicide rate as evidence that the quote unquote gay lifestyle is dangerous and unhealthy. It is a neat trick. And it is why I have said in the past and will say again, and Tony Perkins has threatened to sue me for saying this, that Tony Perkins sits on a pile of dead gay kids at work every day, sits down at his desk on a pile of dead gay kids. Tony Perkins and the Family Research Council, they say that gay people are out there preying on children and that we need to be exposed. They're going to expose the homosexual agenda. And then Tony Perkins finds out from a supporter, from a major donor, that this twisted, tormented closet case assaulted their 18-year-old teenage son in his hotel room in the middle of the night and privately communicates to this candidate his displeasure. But when this candidate goes through to get elected, Perkins says nothing. This candidate, Wesley Goodman, member of the Ohio State Legislature, you may have heard his name in the last week, independent of this story in the Washington Post about Perkins' history with him because he just had to resign from the Ohio State Legislature because he got caught having consensual but warped, twisted, tormented closet case gay sex in his office at the Ohio State Legislature. Apparently there's a videotape out there somewhere circulating, which is why he just resigned from a position of power that he would not have held if Tony Perkins hadn't have covered up this assault. <sighs> Sorry, I know that I'm ranting, but this is rant worthy. Jumping back to the Washington Post report, the letter, letter that Perkins sent to Goodman, suggests that Goodman had admitted to inappropriate behavior and was receiving counseling. Perkins cautioned him against pursuing a political career without addressing his previous actions. Quote, you have only begun the process of restoration, Perkins wrote. 
All right. This is what Perkins thinks. This is what Perkins claims to believe, that people aren't gay, that no one is fundamentally, biologically, intrinsically, essentially gay, that gay people are just sinning, that we're all straight, but some of us sin with dick. Some guys out there sinning on cock. And the love of Christ and maybe a capital gains tax cut can fix all that. That can cure gay people, can heal us, save us. We can be restored. And of course, we can't. And there is nothing more dangerous rattling around out there in the world, nothing that's a bigger threat to 18-year-old sons of prominent donors to your organization than the tormented, self-hating, warped closet case with power. Google Ted Haggard. Google Larry Craig. Google George Reekers. Perkins, hey, Tony, if you're listening, you won't have to Google George Reekers. You know who he was or is. George Reekers was a founding board member of the Family Research Council, a pioneer in the field of conversion therapy, responsible for torturing many effeminate gay boys to death. There's a documentary out there about that. And Reekers was famously caught traveling through Europe, returning from Europe with a male prostitute he took on vacation with him to, quote, unquote, Lift his luggage because Reekers couldn't lift his luggage. Lift his luggage. He needed a male prostitute. Couldn't hire a red cap in an airport in Spain. Had to bring a male prostitute. As one does. One brings a male prostitute to lift your luggage because really who else can lift luggage in the particular way you wish to have your luggage lifted than a male prostitute? So if the guy who invented conversion therapy can't be converted, Perkins should damn well know that Wesley Goodman could not be restored that Wesley Goodman needed to accept himself, kind of like Perkins needs to accept that gay people exist. And we want a culture that accepts and embraces gay people and our existence because then you get happy, healthy, well-adjusted gay people. You don't get married family values conservatives lunging at 18-year-old cock in hotel rooms at conservative conferences. Wesley Goodman, of course, had to resign after getting caught having consensual, twisted, warped, closet case gay sex in his offices. Seems to me that it is also time, way past time, for Tony Perkins to resign in shame from the Family Research Council, in part for covering up a sexual assault of a teenage boy perpetrated by that same Wesley Goodman years earlier. All right, coming up on today's show, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, Esther Perel and I in conversation at the Orpheum Theater in Vancouver, British Columbia, about her new book, The State of Affairs, Rethinking Infidelity. If you're not already a subscriber, go to savagelovecast.com where you can subscribe to the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast. Twice as much show and no ads, savagelovecast.com. Hi, Dan. I need help with a conflict I have in my head. My wife and I are in our 40s, have been married over 20 years, and are best friends and very happy together. My wife has always had a bicurious side, and we fantasized about her with women together and have enjoyed going to strip clubs together, and that always makes her a tiger in bed. She has a very good friend who is very sweet and attractive who we both adore. My wife recently went on a weekend trip with her and several other friends and in a drunken, horny stupor, kissing led to fondling, which led to going down on each other. I've often told my wife, should the opportunity arise, she should take advantage of it. And I even admit, when she was leaving for the trip, I jokingly gave permission for her to have fun, knowing they would be sharing a room together. And by have fun, I meant have fun. Of course, I never actually believed it would happen, but over the years, I've been sort of a cheerleader for it. When she revealed it, I've never been so turned on. I pressed her for details, and we had incredible sex while she described it to me. 
the resentment set in the next day. I started having thoughts of her being intimate with someone else and began to be anxious and envious that she had been with someone and I hadn't and didn't want to be. Part of this might be because she waited two months to tell me because of reasons of her own, which I understood. My wife also poo-pooed it as no big deal because she didn't orgasm and refuses to call it what it was, preferring the term sexual relations to sleeping together or having sex. I don't consider it cheating for my part since technically I encouraged it, but it's more significant than she lets on. She says it's a one-time thing she wanted to experience and see if she had the guts to do. She says she didn't plan it. It just happened. But in my head, that means it could just happen with another man, too, which is irrational. Part of my resentment is that I wasn't there, even though she says she wished I were there. And the whole time and the thought of me being turned on by it got her even more aroused. She said she's been dying to tell me. And now that I have some resentment, she almost regrets it. I'm happy she did, and I'm glad it was with the person she had the experience with. If it were anyone else, I don't think I would feel the same. You only have one life, and I'm proud of her and happy that she finally got to have this experience. The conflict I'm having is that on one hand, I feel a little responsible for it, and I'm okay with it, and I get extremely aroused by thinking about it. But on the other, I'm resentful and envious that someone else has been intimate with my wife, Dan Please help me reconcile these conflicting emotions. Esther Perot, uh, who wrote Mating in Captivity, has a new book out, Rethinking Infidelity, that everyone who's married and been cheated on or cheated should read, and everyone who's married and hasn't been cheated on or hasn't cheated should also read because it might happen. Uh, she's also the host of the really terrific new uh, Audible series and podcast, Where Should We Begin? She says this thing that's so smart and intuitive about what we want from our long-term relationships, our stable, committed, monogamous relationships I think she's talking about here which is we want stability and familiarity, but we also want adventure and we want eroticism, which is often about the unknown and the unknowable and the unbridgeable. And how do we reconcile those two things? And Esther says that perhaps this isn't something that we can reconcile, but a paradox that we manage. And Esther makes the point that this isn't necessarily something that we can reconcile, not a problem that we can solve. It is, however, a paradox that we can manage. Pivoting from Esther and Paradox You Manage, there's something that gets talked about a lot in BDSM circles. It's called subdrop. Somebody who's a submissive who wants to do some crazy bondage or masochistic things, all those things happen. And, and after it's all over, everything you wanted and the big orgasm, they kind of fall a little bit. They kind of feel a little bit drained. And some people in feeling drained, sometimes the draining is a literal process, they feel sad or, or sadness comes in. And I think often people are just mistaking that drained feeling, that empty feeling, that satiated feeling for sadness. And sadness is kind of like being welcomed into that empty space. But subdrop, it's a thing that people talk about in BDSM land. And I think reading cuckold forums and talking to guys who are cuckolds and wanted to be cuckolds and then it finally happens, not that I'm calling you a cuckold, that there's this kind of cuck drop, this thing that you've always fantasized about, your wife sleeping with someone else. It finally happens and you're totally turned on by it and your wife tells you all about it and you guys have amazing, hot, passionate sex as she shares with you the details of the infidelity that isn't an infidelity because it was consensual and agreed to and there was permission. And after you come, after the guy who got cucked, who always wanted to be a cuck, blows his big cuck load, sad, resentment even sort of wells up in him. Oh my God, my wife was intimate with someone else. Cuck drop. Kind of like subdrop. And I think you're experiencing a little bit of cuck drop here. And so what do you do? Well, 
You manage the paradox, like Esther Perel might say. This turns you on. I don't think you want to stop doing this. It sounds like you and your wife going to strip clubs. It sounds like you and your wife being able to talk about her desire for women, her desire for lesbo sex, that that fuels a great deal of your sexual connection. And that improves your marriage to a great extent. It really has informed your erotic script and bound you two together and made your marriage more passionate and pleasurable for both of you. And now that it's fully realized, now that she has slept with someone else with your buy off, you're in different territory and it's new territory. The talking about it and going to strip clubs, all of that old territory, you're in new territory. The talking about it and fucking about it and going to strip clubs about it, that was old territory that you were very familiar with and you really probably built up to very gradually over time. And then you took this leap where you're on new territory and you can't build up gradually over time to wife sleeping with someone else. That's a binary that has happened or it hasn't happened. And there's no like slow lead for that. There's no build for that. You just are in a new unfamiliar place and it's bringing out of you unfamiliar emotions and conflicted emotions. And so paradoxically, (laughs) I think the way that you reconcile this is by running toward it. Your wife has to allow you to feel your feelings just as you've allowed her to feel her feelings, her desire for others and act on those desires. She has to honor and allow you to feel your insecurities, even your resentments. You can't punish her for it. You can't retaliate against her for doing what you gave her permission to do, what you encouraged her to do. But she has to acknowledge and can acknowledge that this puts you in a more difficult, emotionally fraught place than she's in. Your spouse slept with someone else. Her spouse didn't. She can honor that that makes you feel a little bit insecure, maybe a little bit resentful without accepting any blame and without being blamed by you. And I think the fix for this long term is not to run from it but to run toward it, to allow your wife to do this again but next time with you present, with you part of it, without you missing out. So you're part of the fun, a part of the adventure and you're there to enjoy it in real time with her, not just after the fact but with her in real time, that this adventure that she had on her own, you will resent her for it less over time if that is the entry point for you both to adventures you go on together in future as a couple. Again, there will be moments. Subdrop happens in long-term relationships and both partners have to manage that together. Cuck drop happens in cuckold relationships, even ongoing established cuckold relationships, and both partners have to manage that together. This particular kind of drop that you're experiencing, it'll probably happen again. And your wife needs to let you feel your feelings, acknowledge them, and you need to take responsibility for the benefits that allowing your wife to be who she is brings to you personally and your marriage together. And find a way to continue to explore this. We are both a part of it and both included. And the takeaway for you both here is This can work for you guys, but at least for the time being, you both got to be there. It's got to be an adventure you shared, not an adventure your wife had on her own. Hey, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old female living in the Midwest, and about two months ago, I broke up with my boyfriend of almost two years. Um, He's two years older than me, and he moved to the West Coast, and it was just really hard. Um, I still like him. We're still friends. We've texted a bunch and chatted once or twice since then. the reason I'm calling is he visited and we broke up. And then the week later, I had previously scheduled a boudoir photo shoot. He didn't necessarily know I was doing it, although I had mentioned it and I know he would be interested in seeing the photos. Um, I almost thought of canceling it, but I didn't. I'm so glad I didn't because it was so much fun. The 
photos are great. And my question is, should I send him one or two of the prints? He didn't ask for them. He didn't know that I did this. I know he'd appreciate them. And yeah, I, I'm not concerned about them getting on the internet because I already put a few of them on my FetLife profile. And I've been thinking about why I want to send them. And I think it's because I want someone to see them. I don't want him to get back together with me. I don't want to make him jealous. I don't mind if he jacks off to them, whatever. So yeah, that's my question. You dumped him. It would be cruel in the extreme for you to send him these boudoir pictures. There's no possible interpretation other than you're interested in getting back together with him, which you are not interested in doing. But that's the only conclusion he's going to come to. Why is she sending me these boudoir pictures if she doesn't want to fuck me still or date me still or get back together? That is the conclusion he will draw from receiving these photos from you. If that is not the message you intend to send, don't send these photos to him. If you want someone to see them, there are 3.5 billion other men on the planet. Maybe you don't have a man in your life right now that you feel comfortable sharing these photos with or want to share these photos with. But at some point in the near future, that man will appear on the horizon and you can share those photos with that man at that time. Do not torment this poor guy that you just dumped and it would be a torment by sending him these photographs giving you the benefit of the doubt giving your conscious and subconscious minds both the benefits of the doubt here and assuming that you don't mean to be cruel you have no intention to be cruel this isn't about picking the wings off the fly this isn't about pouring salt in a wound this is just you hadn't thought it through and you called me to help you think it through and i thought it through don't send him the fucking pictures hi dan and the tech savvy at risk youth I am a 20-year-old college student in the Deep South, and I'm calling because I recently relapsed on uh, marijuana, and a lot of uh, shit happened. Um, I'm currently in a relationship with my girlfriend, who I've been dating for almost seven months now, and I am living with my grandparents currently while going to school. And they do have like certain rules that they had before it was before I relapsed, but now they sort of just like buckled down and gave me a lot of rules that I had to go by. I uh, have to turn my phone in at 10. I can't be out past six during weekdays, 10 during weekends. I have to go to three AA meetings a week and other stuff like that. It's uh, very annoying that I have to go through this, but I kind of understand what they're going through. But it's just the fact that, like, I have to be home by 6 and that I have to turn my phone in, which I don't really see the point in. And it's just really frustrating because, like, my girlfriend and I, we can't really see each other as much because we're both very busy. And I, we want to keep our relationship strong and have the time with each other to be spent well. And so is there any idea that I could, like, maybe talk to my grandparents or my parents about, like, maybe lightening up in the situation? It's been two weeks almost two weeks since I've relapsed and I am going to meetings and I'm working really hard to stay sober, but I just don't see why the, I need to be held under these rules. I considered going to family therapy sessions with them so they could see like my side of the situation and I will be going with them in the future. I do see a therapist on a regular basis and I hope that he can help somehow. Um, I don't know, Dan, I'm just like super tired of this. I've relapsed before and it's just something that, like, I don't really think that, like, their involvement in the situation is really something that, like, will help me to stay sober or anything like that. They think I need structure and they think I need 
some sort of guidance, but I agree. But I think I should set those guidelines and structures myself, because if they're forcing me to do that, I'll just gain resentment and so on and so forth. I had a follow-up question for you. You said you relapsed on marijuana. We're not talking about blackout yeah. drunk or anything. You relapsed on marijuana, and a lot of shit happened. What exactly? Ha- like, did you okay. get your bag of Doritos in the house? Did you rob a convenience store? What do you mean? No. Okay. What happened was, um, so I, so the weed that I had was uh, laced with wax. Uh huh. And then, like, I called my girlfriend, and I started crying and freaking out. Because like I haven't smoked in like months, and like for, for the old for the I old w- folks out there and the squares like me, what is wax? What do you mean? What the <laughs> oh wax. wax? So like like dabs. Okay, so, so it was really are- really powerful. Yeah, it's super powerful. It wasn't like, like PCP really in there. It wasn't coffin nails. Well, it was all. Well, I took a drug test a couple days later, and um, amphetamine showed up oh as well God. as benzo. Where the fuck are you getting your weed? Dude, okay, it was a friend who I didn't really know that well, and <laughs> she said it was just really cheap weed, and I was like, um, okay, and then it just it didn't feel like anything I've ever had before, so it was, it was really scary. <laughs> it was really scary. Okay, so, I mean, I, I was calling you because you're 20 fucking years old. You're an adult. Yeah. Right? But yeah. If, if you're getting shitty weed from people you don't know very well that has PCP in it, maybe you're not an adult. Maybe you need these rules that your grandparents are, are laying down, but you're a fucking adult. You're a college student. Yeah, college students don't have six p.m. curfews. I know it's it's really I have like a lot of my parents who live in Washington. They're very uh, they're very strict and they kind of sheltered me when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And um, and when I moved out to college, um, they still tried to have those rules for me, but like it just wasn't really that able. And now that I'm living with my grandparents, they they want to extend those rules towards me. And, and why are you living with your grandparents? Why aren't you living on campus? Are, do you need, is it a financial problem, a financial situation where you can't afford? It's not exactly financial. I mean, I've transferred a couple times to, from different schools and like, I do have the ability to work, but like with uh, my mental state over the past couple of years, um, mm-hmm. it just hasn't really been able for me to like really live alone mm-hmm. really. And um, so there are other there are other issues but, here at play where you need the you need yeah, family definitely. around and you need the structure. Uh, you do need yeah. the structure imposed by your family for you to, to to keep your footing. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, it, it is. It is. And like for the past year or so, I've been doing a lot better and actually been looking for a job. I have applied for jobs and like I I plan on I, I hope to move out possibly next semester, mm-hmm. which will be like January and um and then maybe my problems will be solved, but um, will it, they? There's still okay, a lot. Wait, I, I have I'm to worried. Do. Will your problems be solved? <laughs> like if you, you know, if you move out, the curfew problem is solved. But do you have the self discipline yes. and self control to, if you choose to, enjoy good pot mm-hmm. that you obtain yeah. from a reliable source responsibly? Yes. Or when you're on yes. your own, do you spin out of control? Um, it really honestly depends about how much stress I'm having or if I'm sleeping well because I start to get a little manic since I have bipolar and um, it, it, I would just have to be very watchful and very aware of what's going on. And if I'm not taking up too much and if I am going to school and working and like living in a house and having a car and all that stuff, mm-hmm. it would be a lot to take in, but I would still be able to have support from my parents and my grandparents if needed, I think. 
I'm tempted to Google bipolar and marijuana at this moment as we. <laughs> it's not a great. It's not a great mix. Yeah, honestly. it isn't a great mix. So you know, I was I was no. calling you to say fuck your grandparents and you're an adult and if you want to smoke pot every once in a while you should, but the more details yeah. you give me, the more I'm kind of like tiptoeing toward grandma and grandpa's side here and worried that if I yeah. tell you without knowing all the extenuating, you know, without knowing what kind of chaos pot has created for you in your life. Uh, right. intersects with your with your mental illness. Mm-hmm. I don't feel so comfortable telling you to tell grandma and grandpa to go fuck themselves and move out and smoke as much pot as you want like any college student would because you're not any college student. You have other challenges. Right. And, yeah, you exactly. Know, I've, you've, if you listen to the show, you've heard me describe myself as a pothead about 100,000 times. Yeah. But not every, you know, not everybody can smoke pot. There's pot isn't for everybody. And it right. might not be I, mean, I used you. to I used to be I used to be I used to be a, a huge pothead, but then I had to cut back. Uh huh. Did you have to cut it out? I had to cut it out for a while. Um, what does your shrink tell you? He says that um, possibly in the future I could be able to smoke pot, but like maybe just not right now, just because like I'm obviously with, living with my grandparents and mm-hmm. like in school, and it's just too much to handle. Because mm-hmm. like it's there's too many risks i guess right you know that could happen because like they have threatened in the past to send me home and i would have to leave school and then just start working sometimes under duress you have to do what you have to do to survive and if what you want is to stay there and to stay in college and not have to move schools again or come back to washington state and live with your parents then you will have to you know grandparents house grandparents rules and right january is not that fucking far away yeah. And you can knuckle under for a couple of months and make it to January. And, you know, don't yes. do that young person thing where you think how things are today at this moment is how they always will be. And right. young people tell themselves that even when, you know, the light's already at the end of the tunnel, you can already see the way out. But yeah, absolutely. You know, there's something about being, you know, 20 or 15 where whatever's happening to you because you don't have the perspective of so much time having already passed in your life that sort of you get the sense that shit ends. You you, you don't, don't do that. Don't tell yourself that. Like January is not that far away. I think you can knuckle under grandma right, and grandpa's right. rules and make it to January just fine and treat it maybe as a little bit of an adventure. You've got a girlfriend. Maybe there's some sneaking around you can do and a little bit of rule breaking. There has been. Okay, there good. And been. is that fun? Does that make the moments you have with her more erotic and more exciting when she has to sneak into your room? Absolutely. And not. And sometimes like, yeah, it's in the car or at my friend's house. It's right. pretty fun sometimes. Sometimes life or your grandparents hand you lemons and you make some fucking sexy boner aid out of it. <laughs> yeah. So take the long view. And, you know, I, I got to say that you, you keep saying, you know, if I'm under stress, I'm likelier to. And I'm here from the future. I'm here from adult life to tell you that it's a never ending stress fest. And you shouldn't tell <laughs> yourself that when I'm under stress, I do this. Because then that becomes a self-fulfilling mm-hmm. prophecy. Then when you're under stress, you're like, all right, there's stress. Here's what I do under stress. That's what I've always done. That's what I've always told myself I do under stress. This is my under stress go-to. And you don't want to tell yourself uh-huh. that. You want to like decouple those things. That marijuana is something you go to for pleasure. That mar- some, marijuana yeah. is something that you go to with friends when you want to have fun. But it's not how you handle or process your stress. That's a bad way to approach pot or alcohol or any other mind-altering chemical substance, even mm-hmm. caffeine. Like you just Especially don't... when it's laced with uh, a bunch of other drugs. Yeah, that's the other fucking thing I want to tell you. Never, ever, <laughs> knowing th- that you have bipolar disorder, 
you know, if you believe right. your therapist when he tells you that a time will come where you can responsibly use a little bit of marijuana here and there without blowing up your life, great. But then you have the added responsibility on top of that to make sure that the marijuana that you are using is just marijuana. That the, yeah. the stakes for you are too high. You know, mm-hmm. I probably shouldn't use the word high there, but the stakes for you are too high. Like somebody else who doesn't have your other challenges might be able to like use some shitty pot that somebody lays with some other shitty shit. And, you know, have a shitty weekend, but not, like, flip the table over, blow up their life. You don't have that wiggle room. Yeah. I don't think, you know, if your therapist, like, signs off on eventually you, like, enjoying pot every once in a while, I will sign off on it, too. But Mm -hmm. you have to take responsibility for the pot that you're going to use. You know, the bar for you is going to be a little bit higher than it would be for any of your peers, especially while you're in the deep Mm -hmm. south when you're part of the country that doesn't have sane marijuana regulations or doesn't have a legal market like we do here in Washington, Colorado, and Oregon, and California, and Alaska. But it's it's coming. It's coming. Nationwide legal pot is coming. But you need to stay away from that shitty weed in wherever the fuck former Confederate state you're trapped in right now. Louisiana. Louisiana, Jesus, yeah. Stay the fuck away from the pot. Yeah. And the Confederate yeah. flags and the racist groups. Oh, I do. Oh, I very <laughs> much do. <laughs> Far away. All right. I was calling you to say fuck grandma and grandpa, but actually we're going to end this call with me saying, you do what your grandparents tell you to, young man. They have your best interests at heart, and January is just around the corner. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> it was lovely talking to you. Have a good day. Okay, you too. Hey, Dan. I am a straight male from California, and I have always considered myself straight, but there are certain guys out there that, I don't know, like, I'm not sure if I'm, like, attracted to them or if I just want to hang out with them, but uh, when I hang out with them, it makes me feel good, but I'm not sure if that makes me gay or bi or, or whatever but like I'm just like trying to sort it out because I'm still very attracted to women but when like certain guys come around like I feel this energy toward them but I don't think I, I could ever follow through with that so I'm not sure and I'm not I'm not trying to classify uh, my feelings because I think that's dumb but I still consider myself straight. But like I was saying, like I have these weird attraction feelings towards certain guys sometimes. But I don't think I would ever follow through with it. So I'm just wondering, like, just, like what does that make me? Whenever someone approaches me with this very question and have been approached with this very question – on the street and in airports. I have a question for them that I usually put to them. You didn't leave a number, so I can't call you back and put it to you, but I'm going to put it to you now. Uh, and then we will end up talking about cake, but here's the question. First, the question is, what do you jack off about these guys that you feel this energy toward that you feel this attraction to? Do you masturbate about them? Do you masturbate about hot, sweaty, Dude on dude sex. Or is this just some vague pull you feel toward guys who are physically attractive and charismatic? Which is it? If you're jacking off about them, 
you might be bisexual, a little bit bi. And that is a fine thing to be. That doesn't mean, though, that you have to identify as bi or come out as bi or march in the B section of the LGBTQLFTSQAI parade. Because, and here comes the cake part, sexual identity is like a layer cake. The first layer is who you want to fuck. The second layer is who you are fucking. And the top layer, it's a three-layer cake, is what you tell people. If you are attracted to men and women to varying degrees and it doesn't have to be to be bisexual. You don't have to be equally attracted to both. That's a myth that floats around out there that prevents a lot of people who are bi from regarding themselves as bi or realizing they're bi or coming out as bi because they're not equally sexually and romantically attracted in the same proportion to men and women. But if you're attracted to both but you're only sleeping with women if you're a guy – it is legitimate to identify as straight. It is legitimate to round yourself up to straight. You don't have to and probably be better for the world, for queer people in the world if you were open about being bi. But if your behavior is all heterosexual uh, and your desire is mostly heterosexual, you can identify as a straight dude. That is fine. There are a lot of women out there who identify as lesbians who are attracted to and sometimes occasionally sleep with men who still identify as lesbians. Because they are primarily sexually active with women and primarily attracted romantically and sexually to other women. And lesbian is the bigger truth, the larger truth. Maybe bi is the actual truth of that bottom layer of the cake. But they move through the world functioning as women who love women and women who partner with women and identify as lesbians so that they are understood to be that kind of gal. So you can identify as straight even if there's an occasional guy that you – feel this pull toward or even jack off about. You can still identify as straight. But if all you feel is this vague sense of tapping into their energy and wanting to be near or with them, that could just be friendship. Beauty is powerful. These guys that you see who are hot and attractive, we ascribe to beauty a lot of things that we perhaps shouldn't. We ascribe to beauty decency and goodness and uh, success and all sorts of other things that – you can be hot and a fucking asshole and a fuck up. You can be not hot according to reigning beauty myths and standards of our era and completely successful and smart and everything else. But we tend to give beautiful people this benefit of the doubt. We want to be near them and around them because we want to bask in these other qualities and benefit from them. And sometimes straight guys in particular – Feel that pull towards a beautiful man. They don't necessarily feel any sexual desire for that man but because straight guys are so paranoid about doing something gay or feeling something gay or sinking into the quicksand that is gayness that they will freak out at that impulse. Whereas a woman who feels this pull towards an attractive, charismatic woman who wants to be her friend won't have that same sort of freak out because female heterosexuality isn't as fragile as male heterosexuality. So – Them's my theories. Wished I could have called you back and asked you what you masturbated about and then pivoted quickly to my favorite subject, literally and figuratively, again, which is always cake. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old poly bisexual living in the South. A few weeks ago, I went on vacation out of state and I met a really cool couple on Tinder um, and I had my first reason. It was really fun, really exciting sexy and, and everyone came and we felt comfortable. We cuddled and we laughed. After that night, I spent a separate night with both of them. So I really got the chance to, to get to know them and we, and we got very close in a short amount of time. So after returning home from my vacation, they began, we kept in contact and they began showering me with a lot of attention and genuine sincerity. 
on my birthday, they sent me a thoughtful care package and asked me to be officially their girlfriend. They voiced me eventually moving or them eventually moving to me. Is, is it too soon to be talking about that kind of thing? My vanilla, non-poly, um, non-kink friendly friends are saying that this is too fast to be contemplating these kind of things. My concern would be they are a primary relationship. Uh, what is going on in their primary relationship that will want them to pull someone else in so quickly? I, I don't know. I'm, I'm concerned. Um, my other question would be, would I be? should I be able to date other people? I mean, this is long distance. She's voiced uh, not wanting me to date other females. He seems to be reluctant about me dating other males, um, but they're understanding that because of the distance, I probably will. Uh, I don't know. What, what, how do other poly couples usually handle that kind of thing? Or is a long-distance poly relationship completely unthinkable? Another question is that this would be my first relationship with a woman. I'm, I'm very attracted to her physically, but I'm only used to being in emotional relationships with men. So my emotional tie is stronger to him. Is that something that would, is it normal to give me pause? Is that bound for destruction? Um, because I have these pol- that polarity. Uh, and finally, um, what, what would a future with them look like? Is it too soon to be thinking about a future? I'll be honest, they are thinking about what's one with me, and, and I would like one with them, but that, that sounds crazy. We just met weeks ago. This couple that you just met is coming on a little strong, and I think I know why they might be coming on a little strong. You're a unicorn. That's what people call women who are open to a relationship with an opposite-sex couple. Called unicorns because so hard to find. To find a woman who is attracted to both of you and that you're both attracted to is open to a polyamorous kind of triad relationship. So unicorns are hard to find. So when a couple that's been unicorn hunting for a very long time finds a woman who is into them and that they are into, they can get a little – aggressive. They can come on a little strong because they've been looking for someone like you for so long that they're just so excited to have found you and they want to lock it down. Now, we talk about people who make premature commitments or prematurely like want to move in or propose marriage or say that I love you really fast and that that is a red flag. That is a bad sign of someone who is emotionally unstable. It's also a red flag of an abuser. And I'm not saying that that's the case here. I doubt very much that's the case here. I don't think that they are potentially abusive. I think that they are just effusive. They're so excited to have found you that they're just blabbing all over you about the future together that they have imagined, not with you, the future together that they have imagined with someone when that person came along, someone like you. And now here you are and they're just blurting all this shit out. We're vomiting it all out because they're so excited to have found not you, but the person you might be, the person that they fantasized about, who might be you. You might be that person. So in their excitement, they are rounding you up to their fantasy third partner that they've been looking for for such a long time, and that's putting you under a lot of pressure. You need to tell them to dial it the fuck back, that you are open to continuing to see them, that you are open to this kind of relationship, but you're only just getting to know them. They may or may not be right for you, or one of them may or may not be right for you, in which case both of them are not going to be right for you. You may or may not be right for them. So don't commit to them. Commit to continuing to explore where this might go. They're demanding a kind of commitment from you, including sexual exclusivity, and tell them you're not ready to make that kind of commitment. You will make a different kind of commitment. You will commit to 
being open to seeing where this might go, to pursuing this with them, to continuing to see them. You will commit to that and you will commit to nothing else, not sexual exclusivity, not a future together, although you're open to a future together. They need to put their expectations in check and they need to not pressure you like this. Addressing a couple other questions quickly, long distance, poly, unthinkable, unworkable. No, you can make that work. People do that all the time. As for being long distance at the moment, that's something that you can work with and work around and people frequently do. Your past relationships, emotional relationships, emotional attractions, romantic relationships, all being with men doesn't mean you can't form a romantic bond with this woman, but you'll have to see. It may be that you are bisexual but heteroamorous and you can have a strong friendship with this woman and even love this woman as a friend but never really love her romantically in the same way that you can love him or who knows maybe you are capable of forming a romantic attachment and and falling in romantic love with a woman too you just have to see how it goes and i think you should be completely honest with them about your apprehensions your nervousness and that this is new for you and emphasize that their overexcitement that they're wanting to game this out long-term right now is making your case of nerves worse and making them less attractive as a prospect, a future prospect, including their desire to tell you you can't date other people. Communicate to them clearly that you are going to continue to date other people where you live and that they're welcome to continue to date other people where they live. And if in the future, if this continues, if you continue to see each other, and then you'll see where it goes. And if you're still together a year or two from now, maybe you can talk about moving there or them moving closer to you or moving in together. But now is not the time to have that conversation. Now is the time to have the conversation about the next time you guys hang out, the next time you guys fuck around, the next weekend you spend together, not the rest of your life, not that conversation. That is too soon. All right, that's your cues and my A's for this week. The rest of today's show is dedicated to my recent deep dive conversation with author Esther Perel about her new book, The State of Affairs, Rethinking Infidelity. We had a long conversation at the Orpheum Theater in Vancouver, British Columbia, to celebrate the release of her book. Here's our conversation. Please welcome to Vancouver, Esther Perel. Uh, it's a little weird to have the first question for you to be uh, a reference to someone else's work uh, and a quote from a different person who writes and thinks and talks about relationships, but I just think this is a great leaping off point. Um, the British author, academic, and psychotherapist Meg Barker, she says, the pressure to perfectly execute monogamy over the life of a marriage, half a century or more, makes every monogamous relationship a disaster waiting to happen. Do you agree? Oh, my God. <laughs> Monogamy as defined as what? Sexual exclusivity for 50 years? In your head? In your past? At this point, for most of us in the West, monogamy exists not in your memories, not in your fantasies, only in reality. And that's only a portion of our consciousness. So... We also have a model by which we can't be, I mean, you introduced one of the greatest terms called monogamish. So you aspire toward it. You do it most of the time. You don't do it necessarily all the time, but you don't let it destroy everything else that you have built. And I think that if you take it as a rigorous concept in which you have one fail and you're out, then she's probably right in her equation. It wouldn't be the way I would think about it, but I love Meg Barker, so it's great. 
You what? I love her work. Uh, I do She's too. quoted heavily in the book. But there is, uh, that is how people think of monogamy. That per- the perfect execution of monogamy over the life of a relationship or a marriage, however long it lasts, is the only standard of success. You, you did it perfectly or you were terrible at it. Right. And I get in trouble for telling people that if you're with somebody for 50 years and they only cheated on you once or twice or three times, they were good at monogamy, not bad at monogamy. <laughs> right. So when, for me, it's more like um, I start to think about this concept because people think like it's as if it's the first time that it's being challenged and we are, we are rethinking monogamy. You know, we've been rethinking monogamy forever. First of all, monogamy for most of history had absolutely nothing to do with love. And furthermore, it was just strictly an imposition on women. This has never been an equal gender proposition. You know, um, men practically have a license to cheat. They have a whole series of theories that justify why they are natural roamers. You know, (laughs) women are created as this domestic creature that never wants to go anywhere. Then I don't understand why she gets locked up everywhere if she never wants to go anywhere. But that's another thing. (laughs) You know, um, monogamy was basically an economic imposition in order to know whose children are these and who gets the cows when I die. It was about patrimony and lineage. Then it was one person for life. That's the other thing here, right? Then it moved into one person at a time. So I have a woman in the book, she tells me, I remember the moment she said, I was monogamous in my two marriages and with my three boyfriends since. You know, it's like I am monogamous in all my relationships. Serial monogamy. Yes, but the concept of this idea that it's no longer one person for life, but one person at a time. That is the, you know, when we used to marry and have sex for the first time, monogamy went something But today you marry and you stop having sex with others. So monogamy means something else. Exclusivity, when you come after 10 years of sexual nomadism, is very different from exclusivity that comes from coming as a virgin to marriage and then having your first and only experience for life. These terms are fluid. When did monogamy become a a marker or a talisman or a fetish object that meant love and devotion? Monogamy that's originally conceived or practiced or enforced was about controlling women and reassuring men that these are actually your children. Uh, it was about addressing paternal insecurity. At what point in the conversation about relationships and love and marriage did monogamy become this symbol or become so, to symbolize love and devotion right, and passion? There are three transition points. Transition point number one is the rise of romanticism. Because romanticism brings love into marriage, and changes marriage from an economic arrangement to a romantic arrangement. And social conservatives 300 years ago, Stephanie Kuntz writes about this in her terrific book, uh, social conservatives were alarmed uh, by the idea that people would marry for love, because love was unstable and fleeting. To marry for a passion... It's way too flimsy an enterprise to build an entire marriage on. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes, because romantic love and romantic marriages have to deal with all the vagaries of the heart. It is clear that they're way more unstable. But still, it is one of the most tenacious ideologies. All the other ideologies of the 19th century have disappeared. Communism went away. Socialism is struggling. Marxism disappeared. Romanticism is holding on tenaciously. And is that good for relationships or bad for relationships? It is. It just is. It just is. It just is. It's, uh, and it's getting more because 
Transition point number one is the rise of Romanticism. Transition point number two, which is the most important one, nothing can be discussed without this, is the democratization of contraception. Otherwise, you cannot have a, a multiple experiences with other people that don't imply the possibility of pregnancy, of mortality, of, and everything that comes with that. So nothing was equal until that shifted. And for that, you no longer had to worry that if you have sex somewhere else, you're going to have a child come out with some color hair that you never knew you had. You know, and then transition point number three starts with the growing nomadism. Because we have 10 years more in the West of, of independent life before we make our committed choices. And those years are quite promiscuous for many people. And so from that Everybody's place, gay now in their 20s. I mean, yes, I yes, look yes, at straight yes, people and straight yes, relationships. Yes, the, the gay people marry, and the straight people finally have the freedom you've always had. Right. When I, I, look, at, I look at straight... You in person. <laughs> I look at straight people in the way straight people comport themselves now until about age 30, sometimes 35, sometimes 40, and what you see is the gay lifestyle that religious conservatives used to condemn that it's about, you know, fucking a lot of people, living in an urban area, uh, not settling down, not having children uh, at 22 or 21 the way straight people used to. And it's hilarious because what straight people did is they took everything that was gay and just renamed it. That <laughs> we had uh, fuck buddies, you call them friends with benefits. Uh, we tricked, you hooked up, and you just changed all the names, but straight people live a gay lifestyle in their 20s and 30s, and then they marry or settle down. And gay people now marry and settle down. It just goes to show that there was nothing gay about the gay lifestyle or straight about the straight lifestyle. That's correct. It was about boundaries and borders. That's correct. <clears throat> but back to monogamy and fidelity. What I, monogamy was never expected of the men. Men were not expected to be monogamous. Men were dogs. Uh, men could have mistresses and uh, concubines and, and access sex workers. Uh, and it wasn't a problem. As marriage became more egalitarian in the West... Um, it had to be fair and the same. And suddenly, the monogamous expectation was imposed on men. Rather than extending the same license and freedom to women that men had always enjoyed, we yanked back from men... The privilege. The privilege. Yep. So it went from an imposition on women to a dual-gender conviction of the grand declaration of love. And now... And it's been a disaster for marriage. <laughs> in my opinion. That is, I'm sure it's your opinion. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you look at the charts of just like the divorce rate, and if you tracked the imposition of monogamy on men, that would be sort of a perfect line, a perfect overlap of those trends. Yeah, but I'm not sure that the rising divorce rate is just an issue of monogamy. The rising divorce, you know, women are the initiators of divorce. In Soviet Union, which was the most egalitarian society, 97% of divorces were initiated by women. Very important to understand. So there was no economic issues. And so it was really about, is this, you know, generally we know that the relationship is, works, it, it does better for men than for women. Men live better, live longer, are healthier if they are in relationships, and women are exhausted. <laughs> From making sure that... <laughs> Which is why I don't recommend opposite-sex relationships. <laughs> I knew you were going to come back with one They never of work out. <laughs> No, when monogamy becomes the sacred cow of the romantic ideal, and it now means that as I meet you, and you become the one, and I'm going to 
promise exclusivity to you and forego all the others. And for you, my dear, I am going to delete all my apps. Because you, my dear... Or I'm going to tell you I deleted all my apps. Because you, my dear, are so compelling. You have captured my imagination and we have chosen each other at our most authentic and at our essence. Monogamy in that context of choosing in which you cure me of my terrible case of FOMO, because I no longer need to think about anybody, you know, that's it, that's it. That is a very different kind of romanticism. What inspired you to get into this field? That's psychotherapy, specifically working with couples who are facing this crisis. So I've been a couples therapist for 34 years. I've devoted my work, my life, to helping people navigate the challenges of relationships, and particularly the challenges of modern relationships, because I think there is not a single unit that has undergone a bigger extreme makeover than the couple. Not the friendship, not the sibling relationships, no other relationship system has so transformed as the couple has. And we are making up the rule book as we go, and couples are isolated. Great couples in particular, women may sometimes talk to somebody, men talk to nobody. Nobody knows what goes on in the backstage of a couple, which is why I did the podcast. Because there is more pressure on couples to succeed, to be happy, to do well, and to be long-lasting. With very few resources, and with more time spent with children, and more time spent with work, and less time spent with each other, while at the same time having an expectation that at an all-time high. And then I start to see people who are who are just basically breaking under the weight of expectations. And I've seen hundreds, thousands of couples who have been shattered by the experience of infidelity. And when I looked at the literature, I thought, this is not helpful. It's a discourse that is judgmental, that is polarizing, that lacks compassion, that lacks care, that would love to think of the world in black and white, and in good and bad, and in victim and perpetrators, when the dilemmas of desire are way too complex to be reduced in two narrow categories. Infidelity has existed since marriage was invented. It has a tenacity that marriage can only envy. Regardless of the model of marriage, infidelity has existed, but its meaning has always changed. And, and that it is means really more now, infidelity and cheating, because... Because when it was an economic threat... It threatens your economic security. But today, where you are not just my partner, and I don't just choose, I choose my soulmate. My soulmate and my one and only used to refer to God, not to a partner. We conflated the spiritual with the relational in our secularized society. We elevated our partner to be the one with whom we are going to feel transcendence, ecstasy, meaning, wholeness, all these things that we used to look for in the sanctuary of the divine that we now want to experience in our earthly perfections. When you cheat on me and I thought I was the one and I was so special, I am not. So it's not just a cheater in that circumstance who failed. It's the person who chose the cheater thinking the cheater was their soulmate. Yes, I am not. It shatters the grand ambition of love. This is a very new meaning. And not only does it shatter the grand ambition of love, and I'm not that special, 
which I thought I was, but on top of that, I no longer know who I am. So now it has become a crisis of identity. I thought I knew who I was. I thought who I knew what my life was like. I thought I had the story clear. Everything gets shattered. And on top of it, I can't trust you. Not only can't I trust you, but I can't trust my own perception. How brittle is that? That seems insane to, 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 to put so much meaning and import and weight on... One person. One per, well, one person the, and the tip of that person's dick, really, or <laughs> that person's vagina, to, to put so much meaning and import on their genitalia and whether they ever touch anybody else ever again with their genitalia. Knowing what we know about infidelity, lust, desire that we're not a naturally monogamous species, that no species... But that's irrelevant. It's, if you're naturally or not naturally, it's irrelevant. You have a system, you have maybe had a relationship in which you agreed that you were going to have an exclusive relationship. Most relationships have two monogamy agreements. Tammy Nelson talks about that beautifully. We have explicit monogamy agreements and implicit monogamy agreements. The explicit ones is the vows, it's all the declarations you make. The implicit ones is all the things, the clandestine negotiation you're doing in your head about, is this okay? This is just a smudge, just a little flirt. This is nothing. Can I read a page? Yes, yes, please. I mean, there's a page of this that actually I'm reminded of. It's, uh, it's, it's when people tell me, nothing happened. Wait, so somebody got caught cheating and is in your office telling you that nothing, nothing happened. happened? Yes, yes, yes. There is the nothing happened, you know. Um, nothing happened is the common refrain of the sexual literalists. After a few too many drinks at his co-worker Abby's birthday party, Dustin accepted her invitation to stay over. When quizzed about it the next day by his girlfriend, Leah, he repeated those two words insistently. All right. Since you must know, we slept together in the same bed. But I'm telling you... <laughs> At what point does something happen, I wonder? Leah, meanwhile, is plagued by her own questions. Did they get naked? Did she sleep in his arms? Did he brush his nose against her face, sleeping? Did he get hard? Is that really nothing? These stories make a critical point. Many affairs are less about sex than about desire. The desire to feel desired, to feel special to be seen and connected, to compel attention. All these carry an erotic frisson that makes us feel alive, renewed, recharged. It is more energy than act, more enchantment than intercourse. Even when it comes to the act of intercourse, the adulterous defense system is impressively agile at finding loopholes. People go to great lengths to take the sex out of sex. My colleague Francesca Gentile compiled a list of some of the most imaginative completions to the sentence, it wasn't sex because I didn't know her name. <laughs> no one came. I was drunk. Hi. I didn't enjoy it. I'm not sure I remember the details. It was with a gender that I don't usually have sex with. No one else saw it. We still had our clothes on. We still had some of our clothes on. <laughs> one foot was still on the floor. 
Can I ask you a question? How many of you, raise your hand, if you feel that you have been affected by the experience of infidelity in your life? All right, you see. How so, many of you have committed an no, infidelity? No, 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 no. In the last 12 hours. The reason I ask is because generally about 80% of the people will say that they have had something in their life about this. The children of parents who were unfaithful, the person who was betrayed, the person who closes the triangle, the friends whose shoulder was wet from someone crying on it so strongly. People have had an experience with it, and it's ubiquitous, and yet the conversation about it at this moment doesn't capture that. In most of the literature, we talk only about two people, and it's the couple. Children are rarely mentioned. Certainly, the lover is just described as a nuisance, like it's not a human being. Um, it's a, it's, it, doesn't take a, it doesn't look at it systemically. It doesn't look at it intergenerationally. It doesn't look at the children who, are, who grow up in... In, from experiences like that, and it doesn't look at the children who are the offspring of the affairs, and it doesn't look at affairs who become thriving new relationships after they made a choice. It's so multiple, and I thought we need to do better. And that's when I began to delve into this since 2009. One of the ways in which I think you do better than most people traditionally who would think about or write about or talk about infidelity is when you mentioned compassion, looking at the literature and not seeing much compassion, you sometimes have compassion for the adulterer. You said in your TED Talk, and I thought this was brilliant, and I repeat it all the time on my podcast. If you're a listener, I'm sure you've heard this come out of my mouth on the podcast. I always cite Esther. I always credit Esther. The victim of the affair is not always the victim of marriage. But when we talk about infidelity, all we want to know is who did it, and that's the bad person. Yep. So... I didn't know how else to say it, that relational betrayal comes in many forms. When we accept all kinds of other relational betrayals, indifference, neglect, violence, contempt, sexual frustration, flat-out sexual refusal for decades, and, the, and then you can look at the person who strays and you say, you destroyed this relationship, you betrayed me, you cheated you know, and something about that. It's almost like you lost the game on a technicality. Well, it's not a technicality. You have the moral superiority that the society gives you. That's not a technicality. That's power. It's different. Because society doesn't give the same weight to the contempt, the neglect, no, the abuse, no, the denial. No, because the notion is to keep the marriage together. And it, what happens on the inside, as long as it stays on the inside, is still, you know... More, more encouraged. And so it's very difficult because if I say this, then it instantly becomes, you, you know, not condemning becomes condoning. Understanding becomes justifying. It is just part of the same polarizing conversation that doesn't take into account how complex this is. So I want to tell you where the compassion came from. One of them, he really sh sh changed my whole thinking. The revelation of an affair can be so wrecking, it is no surprise that most people want to take sides. Whenever I tell someone that I'm writing a book about infidelity, the immediate reaction is usually, are you for or against? As if there were only two options. 
My answer is yes. Behind this cryptic response lies my sincere desire to initiate a more nuanced and less judgmental conversation about infidelity and its concomitant dilemmas. The intricacies of love and desire don't yield to simple categorizations of good and bad, victim and culprit. To be clear, not condemning doesn't mean condoning, and there is a world of difference between understanding and justifying. But when we reduce the conversation to simply passing judgment, we are left with no conversation at all. We are also left with no room for people like Benjamin, a mild-mannered gentleman in his early 70s who approached me after a talk in Los Angeles to ask, is it still called cheating when your wife no longer knows your name? My wife has Alzheimer's, he explained. She has been in the nursing home for the past years, and I visit her twice a week. For the past 14 months, I have been seeing another woman. Her husband is on the same floor. We have found great comfort in each other. Benjamin may be one of the nicest cheaters I have ever met, but he is by no means alone. Plenty of people care deeply for the well-being of their partners, even while lying to them. Just as plenty of those who have been betrayed continue to love the ones who lie to them and want to find a way to stay together. For all these people, I am committed to finding a more compassionate and effective way to infidelity. People often see an affair as a trauma for which there is no return. And indeed, some affairs will deliver the fatal blow to a relationship. But others, others may inspire change that was sorely needed. Betrayal cuts to the bone, but the wound can be healed. Affairs can even become generative for a couple. And because I believe that some good may come out of the crisis of infidelity, I have often been asked, so would you recommend an affair to a struggling couple? My response, a lot of people have positive, life-changing experiences that come along with terminal illness. But I would no more recommend having an affair than I would recommend getting cancer. I literally had the book open to that page and was about to read that paragraph <clears throat> and ask you about that. <laughs> <clears throat> you get in trouble by bringing nuance to a subject that we're not allowed to bring nuance to. We're not allowed, when you're discussing infidelity, when you're discussing cheating, you're not allowed to ask follow-up questions. Not so, just who cheated, but what's the relationship like? What led, up, what led to the cheating? And there are cases, and sometimes I get in trouble for this, where I think cheating is the least worst option. There are cases where I think someone may have grounds I remember my own, if I may, uh, she's dead, so she can't object, but my mother um, was very Catholic and very proper, but after my dad left her and divorced her, she had an affair with a married man. And if I say that to people and I give no further details, people are often shocked by my mother's behavior and her betrayal of her Catholic moral code. And then I add, this man was married to a woman who'd been bedridden for 20 years. He was her caretaker and completely committed to her, faithful to her, loyal to her, having a lover made it possible for him to stay in that marriage and stay sane and be the caretaker and spouse that his wife needed at this stage in their marriage. And my mother helped facilitate that by fucking yeah. him. And maybe by loving him. And also by loving him. And by loving him, 
and by being able to respond to him and by being able to touch him and by giving him the pleasure of knowing that he could still touch someone and that she that there was a woman who could be pleasured by his presence it's don't reduce it to fucking <laughs> My mother is smiling on you right now from heaven, <laughs> not on me. But no, we shouldn't reduce it to fucking, but that was a big part of it. You see, inf- adultery, infidelity, affairs, cheating. I mean, I could read a whole section. They have a half a page of the vocabulary. There is no morally neutral vocabulary to talk about this. Only when you go to the movies or when you go to the opera, people actually talk about love stories. We call it cheating. And that only looks at half the story. But the subject is shrouded in secrecy and in shame. And that has never been useful for anybody and anything. I mean, it's a blasphemy to think, you know, the, no, the answer to this is if you're unhappy enough to have an affair, you are unhappy enough to leave. And the notion is that leaving and divorce is the answer for a clear-cut solution to a very messy, imperfect life. And it's not that simple. And that leaving is the ethical and responsible yes. thing. Yes, the, but when in fact people often live compromised lives and people live imperfect lives and people make all kinds of choices and people sometimes accommodate to a certain situation in order to be able to continue to take care of an entire family. It is much more layered at the same time as... This explains some of the, the, the mindset of the people who make those choices. But this is an experience that is so fundamentally differentiated by the different characters that are playing the parts here that while you may be thinking you're doing something good, <laughs> this person may think that there is not a single good thing that you've been doing about this. And there, you will not be able to convince me that what worked for you was good for me. It is so completely divided. Talk for uh, a brief second about open relationships. Yeah. One of the things I thought was interesting in uh, the book was the observation uh, that it is possible to cheat in an open relationship. Yes. Uh, Meg Barker's point, every monogamous relationship is a disaster waiting to happen because there could be the betrayal of an affair or adultery. Well, in an open relationship, it's still possible to betray. It's still possible to violate the rules that a couple in an open relationship might establish. And you make the point that Affairs are often not about sex, not about monogamy versus non-monogamy, but about transgression right. and the so self. I had two major findings, well, many more than two, but there were two about this that really um, captured my attention during the, the research for the book. One was, you know, what does it mean that regardless of the system, regardless of where you put the boundaries, there is something about wanting to go into the very thing that is forbidden that is essential to the erotic. And I, that question I already asked in Mating in Captivity. Why is the erotic so forbidden? Why is it so hard to want what we already have? But then the other part was, why is it that even people in happy relationships cheat? We have a real conviction that affairs only happen in troubled relationships. It's a symptom model. If you have everything you need at home, why would you go looking elsewhere? If you're going elsewhere, there must be something missing. And either there's something missing in your relationship or there's something missing in you. And that notion that some affairs may have nothing to do with the relationship, but actually with the individual, and that they have a lot more to do with longing 
and loss and not so much a desire to leave you as much as the desire to leave who I have become. Not so much looking for another person as looking for a different version of myself. Not transgression against the partner, but transgression against the self. Against the box in which I have put myself in, in which life has put me in, in which the box that I myself may have created. Is that any comfort to the partner who's been cheated Not on to in hear? the beginning. Never in the beginning. In the beginning, all of this is Whatever you experienced in the moment of the acute crisis where this has just become apparent to me, none of what has happened to you matters to me. Just me. Because your nightmare may be ending, but mine is just beginning. So we are in the, in the crisis phase. It's about me. It's about my wondering what, what is the lie? Who did you fall in love with? What did you do? Why are you here? You know, uh, are you here because you really want to come back? Are you just waiting for me to say leave so that you don't have to be the guilty one to do it? Are you hoping that I will not forgive you because you actually don't think you're forgivable? You know, it's many, many different things. Later, in phase two, I do want to understand why did this happen? What does it mean for you? Why, what were you looking for there? What is it that you found there that you could maybe bring back home if we choose to be together? And then you begin to really delve into the power of transgression. Pairs, many of the people I work with that are not chronic philanderers, they're not repeat offenders. The majority of the people who come to a therapist's office, they're very clearly like that, are people who have often been faithful and monogamous for decades. And one day they cross a line they never thought they would cross. They find themselves at a conflict between their own values and their behavior. And then you want to know, why would they risk losing all of that, that they have built for a glimmer of what? And that's when you start to understand transgression. Something about breaking your own rules is intensely liberating. Makes you feel for the first time that you once again have a say, have agency over your life, can change things, are not entrapped and boxed in, even if it's a box that nobody is holding, you know, it's just your own box. You know, here you feel like you're just a mother and just a wife and just a caregiver and so responsible. And here, finally, you can think about yourself and you need the secret of it because there is something liberating for people in a space where nobody else can enter. That gives them control. It makes it sound like infidelity is inevitable. It happens. It's not inevitable. It happens. It's, uh, it, I would say it in reverse. I would say, no, it's not inevitable at all. But I would say that when it happens, you know, you, it, is not, it isn't meant to be that much of a shock. It's, it's, uh, if you don't think of it only as the cheating and as the betraying and as the, as the duplicity that's involved, but you can't do this from the position of the person to whom it's been done. It's easy for me because I am looking at all the people, and what I offer is a container to hold these two completely opposite experiences who in, in that moment and just create calmness, reassurance, and help people to not confuse their feelings about the affair with their feelings about the 27-year relationship that preceded, in which they would redefine the entire relationship on the basis of this one event, because many of the people who stay together later on for those who, for, for whom it is. Because affairs can either break a marriage or a relationship or remake it, one or the other. For those who stay, when you interview them five, ten years later, it's a different story. 
And you cannot act from the place when your entire limbic system is completely hijacked, you can't think, and you just decide that none of this meant anything. Your whole edifice was a farce. And it is so unfair to the relationships, to the effort, to the investment that people put in there, to the parents they buried, to the children they birthed, to the homes they built, to the... It's, 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 not, it's not okay. How do we diffuse it? It has this power to destroy relationships. I think it's partly because we tell ourselves that infidelity is a relationship extinction level event. It is the leading cause of divorce at this point in the U.S. But it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. When this thing happens, the next thing that happens is it's over. And we believe that, we invest in that. Um, But if part of what's informing that is uh, what you said about the choice of the mate, the person that you marry, uh, being this expression of, you know, Everything you are, ultimately. Um, the weight and the importance you put on it. I can't paraphrase what you said about how uh, choosing that person uh, who's your lover and your everything, your soulmate, and realizing you chose wrong, that that's devastating. How do we make it less devastating? Knowing that um, the stats now, and they're evening out, women are now, women under 40, or under 50, are as likely to cheat in a long-term relationship as men. So it wasn't about maleness at, that contributed to infidelity. It was about power. As women have become more powerful economically and in their relationships, having more autonomy. Give the woman a car. Give the woman a car and a credit card. Like in Saudi Arabia, give the woman a car. But, but women are as likely to cheat now as men. Uh, you know, but you see, if you say they're know, as likely to cheat. We know from the stats that most, everybody in, everybody in a long, multi-decade relationship, one or the other or both are going to cheat. And it's so explosive. How do we diffuse it? How do we get people in advance of that near-inevitable moment sitting on the couch in your office to not experience it is so devastating. Why not? It is devastating. It is devastating sometimes to know that you fell in love somewhere else. It's devastating to know that there you bring your perfect self, charming, seductive, attentive. You're not, you're not busy when you are at your, with your girlfriend there, you know, ticking on the phone. When I talk to you, I get barely your attention. You bring me the leftovers. You bring that person the best of you. You bring me, you know, crumbs, and there you have suddenly time. Here you are tired, busy, and stressed, and there you are at 5 o'clock in the morning, totally awake. You know, it's, of course, I, I will be beyond pissed. And on top of it, God knows how much you spend there. And on top of it, you know, it's so many variations of this. It okay, but is, how about devastating but survival? That's, that's the piece. It is devastating. But that doesn't mean that it needs to invalidate. It is a major crisis when I find out. But the crisis need not, by definition, spell the end of an entire life. That's the difference. And why? Because later on, I'll need to begin to understand what happened. And then, and I think that probably needs to be said before the break, because one of the big pressures on relationships today is that for most of history, divorce carried all the stigma. Now, choosing to stay when you can leave is the new shame. And this was the Hillary Clinton thing. And many other women, I mean, I, did, they were, I went to a conference last week, 12,000 women. I had a room just to, This was the moment when they all clapped. It was like you knew. Because now you're not just betrayed by your beloved, but I can't talk about it with any of my friends. They are judging me if I dare to stay, you know. And I have two episodes in the podcast. One of them, the kids literally say to the mother, you have Stockholm Syndrome. You know, they don't want to talk to her because she actually wants to still fight for this. And... Who are we to say 
how long love wants to fight. This is one of the few freedoms we have of self-determination, you know? And then I am in double silence. I have to protect the person who betrayed me, and I can't talk about it with the people from whom I need the most support. That is a real tough spot. All right. Esther Perel. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I hope you think Esther is as amazing as I think Esther is. Please pick up both her books, Mating in Captivity and The State of Affairs, and check out her Audible series, Where Should We Begin?, which is fascinating, addictive listening. It's Esther in conversation with couples, one-time couples counseling sessions. Check it out. All right. And here are some of your responses to recent shows. Hi, this is a call for the woman in episode 577 who was concerned about uh, her boyfriend's mismatched ambition. And I want to say that Dan is absolutely right. If you are a highly ambitious person, you can benefit so much from having someone who is calmer, who lives more in the moment, um, and who maybe doesn't have the same drive that you have. I also thought as a young woman that I would need someone whose ambition matches mine. And because I think so much about the future, I am the one in the relationship who makes all the plans. I pay the taxes. I'm the breadwinner. But I get lost in the future, and I lose sight of the moment, and I burn out easily. And the thing that saves me time and time again is my amazing massage therapist husband, who is not as driven, but who is loving and able to support me and so, so appreciative of all the work that I do bringing the money home that he cleans the house. And it's a wonderful arrangement, and we've been together for almost 20 years. So keep your eyes out for that guy, and I wish you luck. Hi, I'm calling in response to Buck Angel's advice to the trans man who sometimes presents femininely. Like Dan said, there are queer men who would accept that person for everything that they are. But I also think that there was like a lack of compassion and memory from when Buck Angel was coming out and had figured out that he was trans and automatically wanted the world to see him as trans as soon as he figured that stuff out. I think that like it's totally possible that this person is very early in their transition, whatever that means to them, and that this is their first step and their conflict with the world not seeing them the way they are. And that's like a perfectly normal first step and first stage, and they need to come out of it or move through it in their own time. Hey, this is for the woman who is struggling with her weight in episode 577. As somebody who's struggled with their weight for a really long time, I know that I never felt sexy because I'd never seen anyone who looked like me be sexy. So one of the things I would recommend is going on Tumblr and Instagram and looking for people who look more like you doing stuff that looks hot because that's really how I figured out that I could be sexy. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Esther Perel on Twitter at Esther Perel. And speaking of Twitter, Emily Ullman tweets, They say you can't buy common sense, but I wholeheartedly disagree. 
is why I bought two friends Magnum subscriptions to the Savage Podcast this week. Thank you, Emily, for the vote of confidence and welcome to the Magnum edition of the show, Emily's Two Lucky Friends. If you've already bought your friends Magnum subscriptions to the Savage Lovecast, you can also go to itmfa.org and buy your friends and impeach the motherfucker already. Swag for Christmas coming up. Christmas is coming up. Get them ITMFA t-shirts, mugs, hats, and pins all at itmfa.org or if you prefer, impeachthemotherfuckeralready.com. All proceeds, every single cent, go to the American Civil Liberties Union, Planned Parenthood, and the International Refugee Assistance Project. We've already donated $200,000 to those organizations and we are pressing forward in hopes of donating another hundred grand. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.